speak to us. Thanks. Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the lead pastors here. Uh, listen, I looked at the survey results this morning, and uh, ladies are up on the guys, 61% to 39%. And so all I'm saying is, fellas, <clears throat> got some work to do. Um, please take that. I have read, we've done this for five years, six years, a while, we've done a lot. Uh, I've read every response that has ever been put into a church survey at this church. So if you wrote it, I read it. Um, Doesn't mean we could do it, doesn't mean we even agreed with it, but I read it and we talked about it. If you wrote it, we didn't ignore it. Now I'll tell you how far this church has come. I went through some of the responses this morning and I will just tell you, our church is so much gentler than we used to be. Amen. That is a praise. Now, if you don't understand how Christ-like your responses have been, both in the celebrations and in the encouragement, and also even in the criticisms and the desires, man, a few years back, it was not gentle. <laughs> it was downright bad at times. And so uh, praise the Lord that he has continued to work faithfully in our church. I want you to look to your left or your right. I want you to find a place where you can see that, I don't know what to call that color, the pew, um, green, blue, teal, 1982 pew. Anyways, uh, there's, there's a color to that. I want you to find some fabric. Go ahead and look at it right now. You guys are looking at me. I want you to look at the fabric. Do you see it? You see some, right? Some empty space. Easter's coming, and we've been saving that spot for your friends. Unfortunately, you're going to have to bring them, but Easter's coming. We're going to spend three weeks in Romans 12, starting today, and then we're going to spend four weeks doing a series about the call, which is about uh, this church vision moving forward, and then we're at Easter. It's coming that quick, so I'm just telling you that you have about seven weeks to, to get prepared to fill that seat with your friend, your coworker, uh, your loved one. All right. Don't wait. Don't, don't wait seven weeks. Yeah. Uh, all right. In chapter 12 of Romans, uh, we are going to make a big transition, and this is why we want to spend some time here, Romans 12, 1 and 2 today, and that's because for 11 chapters in the book of Romans, uh, Paul has been explaining to the church in Rome uh, all of the doctrinal reasons, all of the things about God and a creation and nature and the fall and the problem with humans and sin and, and, and the dysfunction of earth. And he's been explaining why it was so necessary for Jesus to come and why it was impossible for us to save ourselves. Just uh, all the way through, just a, just a beautiful picture of the whole story. And then it gets to 12. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna make this transition from 11 chapters about this vertical relationship between us and God. And we're now going to look at the practical side of because of what he has now explained in 11 chapters 
chapters, we're going to look at the horizontal implications, right? You have two types of relationship in your life. You have the vertical relationship between you and God, and then you have the horizontal relationships, which is all of the people around you, whether those are intimate, close relationships or people that you'll barely talk to. And so in Romans 12, this is the transition. 11 chapters about the vertical relationship, about to transition to all of the rest of Romans is primarily going to be about how we now live that out in horizontal relationships. Now, both matter. The the reasons for how we live the Christian life, the doctrine, the theology, it matters. But the fact that we actually have to apply it matters as well, Amen? amen? We could read and study and get very learned and not do it. And I think we actually call that Pharisees, right? I mean, we actually read about those guys. They knew more of the Bible than you'll ever memorize, but it did not help. So it has to be both. It can't be just living it out and not understanding it and studying it and knowing it. And it can't just be studying it and knowing it and not living it out. It has to be both. And so in the first 11 chapters of Roman, Paul says, uh, he kind of walks through the story. If you follow it from, from chapter one through chapter 11, in, in, in chapters one through three, we were confronted by the fearsome wrath of God, God's justice because of sin entering the world and because of man's depravity. And then in kind of chapters three through five, we learn of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing you do, nothing you can earn, none of your own righteousness, no other God, no other path, no other way, just Christ. And then in uh, chapters six through eight, we really encounter an explanation of God's faithfulness. And then in nine through the end of 11, we, we gaze into his unsearchable, sovereign ways. The fact that God has always been in control and that his plan for salvation was set in motion before the creation of the earth. It wasn't by accident. And then we're gonna get to Romans 12 because we're gonna get a therefore. When you get a therefore in the Bible, it's a big deal. That's why you always have to look back when you get a therefore. So, Here's what 12, 1 and 2 are going to say, some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, certainly in Romans. It says this, read with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This passage is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. Certainly, uh, Charles Swindoll would say, uh, probably one of the top three most pivotal moments in all of the book of Romans is this set of verses right here. And it starts this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So what is Paul doing? He's saying, I want to urge you. I want to I convince you. Like he has great angst, great concern that you will do something because of all of his explanation. So, so, so he, he, he wants you to believe it and he wants you to do it and he's trying to, he, it's a call to action and he can't make you do it. We've talked about it. That I, he can't make you love Jesus. I can't make you love Jesus. If I could make you love Jesus and there was just a way to do it, I would do it. 
If you told me right now, like, all you got to do is like a little spell, I, I would learn spells. If there was a stick and I could hit you, and, and once I hit you with this, the love stick, it's not a thing, but if it was, I would hit you with the love stick and you'd love Jesus, y'all would be sore. He can't, so what does he do? He urges, he pleads. He's trying to compel you. Listen, it's worth it. Look, at this is, this is the preacher's job. We don't get up here and tell you what you have to do. We're trying to tell you that he's worth it. Therefore, the big therefore, because of the argument that he's made. So he's laid out 11 chapters about the story of history from creation until Jesus comes and, and, and is resurrected. He, he lays the whole story out. He, he's linking it together so you understand. He's saying, therefore, in response to what God has done. That's what the therefore is for. Why should I do this? Well, here's 11 chapters of why. In response to the truth of the gospel, in response to the truth of scripture, the truth of the story of God redeeming us, the only reasonable, logical response is to do what he's about to talk about. That's what he's trying to, to convince us of. You and I live in the shadow of the resurrection. We live in, a, in, in the response period of the resurrection. And he's going to explain, because of that, let's live this way. Now, he says brothers here, if you're reading in the ESV, understand that that's just a, a, a choice that the translators made in the ESV. In some translations, it'll say brothers and sisters or brethren. Um, it is gender neutral, right? But saying brothers and sisters is really long, so they say brothers. Um, it's not a, assuming uh, that they're only speaking to men. You're going to see this a lot, especially in the ESV. They'll, they'll use universal terms, but you'll just see brothers. In the same way that sometimes we say actors and actresses, and we just say actors, it's not meant to send any message other than to encompass all of you. You might even have a footnote in your Bible that says this. Brothers, by the mercies of God. That, that is really encompass, uh, encompassing the first 11 chapters. It was only because of God's mercy that we're here today with the opportunity to consider listening to Paul and doing what he's, he's telling us to do. If not for God's mercy, we wouldn't even have this choice. The only reason we, we have the ability to potentially listen and consider what Paul's going to plead for us to do is because of the mercy of God. The gospel, the gospel, which is Jesus coming and redeeming us, dying for our sins, paying our debt, resurrecting, calling us to new life, the gospel makes this possible. Okay, so by the mercies of God, what does he want us to do? Here's what he wants us to do to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, unless you've just been in church a long time and you studied this a lot, that's just a wild phrase, living sacrifice, because we don't do sacrifices anymore, amen? I mean, you didn't come in here last week and we were like slaughtering the oxen on the altar. You would have left really quickly, I'll be real. But, but, but he's, he's going back to the Old Testament. He's going back to the Jewish faith in, in which they had a lot of ritualistic sacrifices. And he's explaining, hey, there's a different type of sacrifice now that you and I will make that is part of worship and it's gonna look different than it used to look. How different? Well, really different. Let's, let's consider the differences. In, in the Old Testament, 
there was an, a big altar that was required that you would have to take and put the sacrifices on. But in this living sacrifice, there, there is no altar. There's no one place you have to go. You, y'all realize this is just a building, right? This is not a church. You're the church. Say me. me. You're the church. Which means that when you leave here in 30, 90 minutes, <clears throat> you're still the church. Wait, wait. Tomorrow, when there's no service going on, you're still the church. You're still the church. It's not a building. There's not an altar. It's not a temple. You're the church. Americans say, we can't get that through. Where are you going today? I'm going to church. No, you're not. You are the church. You're going to a worship service. You're going to the assembly. You're going to be encouraged. You're not going to church. This is, this is just wood and steel. In, old, in the Old Testament, animals were slain. So something had to die in the Old Testament for sacrifice. But in the new sacrifice, it's a living sacrifice. It's the exact opposite. In the Old Testament, they would, they would cut them up, but in the new sacrifice, you're whole. In fact, in the old sacrifice, we were, we were destroying and tearing them apart, but in the new sacrifice, God's putting you back together. You're becoming whole again. In the old sacrifice, the sacrifices were then burned up, but in the new sacrifice, you continue to be poured out as a drink offering, and the more you pour yourself out, actually, the more whole you get. So you're being restored as you serve, as you're being poured out. Instead of as we cut it up and burn it up, it's gone. In the old sacrifice, it was based on a legal obligation. You had, there was a, there was a set of check boxes. Boy, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. But the new sacrifice is based on gratitude because of his mercy. It's the opposite. So everything that they knew in, in, in Judaic faith about sacrifices, it's now flipped on its head. In the old sacrifice, you had to keep doing it over and over and over again every single day because death wasn't defeated and death was a reality. But in the new living sacrifice, all we're doing because death has died is celebrating that life is now eternal because everything changed on the day death died. Lucky I don't have my button. How then... How then, so, so even if you understand the gospel and you know that, that Christ died for us, how then can our living sacrifice, you and I, be considered holy and blameless? Because if we're being real, if we're reading the, the, the verses literally and we're being honest with ourselves, ain't none of us holy and acceptable. I've been holy and acceptable for approximately 14 minutes, right? I mean, like, you're... If you made it since last Sunday without sinning, we should have a conversation about reality and lying. We're not holy and blameless. Like, how can we be holy and blameless? No one's holy and blameless. You're like, well, sweet little children, have you met toddlers? This morning, they were having a good time seeing if they could all grind their colored Cheerios and Fruit Loops into the ground. I actually love that. <laughs> Woe is the day when there's no kids to grind their Cheerios into the ground, right? You count that a blessing. You're not holy and blameless. I'm not holy and blameless. No one's holy and blameless. Get real. 
Have you met people? They're really messy. You know, they talk about church, like church would be great except for the people. We're messy people. How can we be holy and blameless? Because what happened in the resurrection of Christ when he paid for our penalties and when we put faith in him, through our faith in him, we get to wear his righteousness. And so it's not our righteousness anymore, it's his righteousness. So when, you, when it says holy and blameless, it's not talking about you, it's talking about him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says it this way, for our sake, he made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So they're gonna take a dirt bag like me, and if you knew me, man, let me tell you, a dirt bag like me, and I'm gonna be holy and blameless because I'm wearing Christ's righteousness. This is why we're pumped up. That's a miracle. Philippians 3, 9, and he found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul's saying, I'm urging, I'm pleading, I'm appealing to you based on this gospel, what Jesus did, the argument that your work would never work, that you could never do it, but that Jesus did it for you, that because of that, you and I should take our bodies, our very lives, and present them to God as living sacrifices. Not our body anymore, his. We're giving our very lives to God to honor, in honor of what he's done. And this act is holy and blameless because we wear Christ's righteousness through our faith in him and what he's done. But we must be willing to give him our lives. That's the catch. Do you see that? See, so you can't be a living sacrifice if you think like, it's my life and I'll just, I'll just give him a little piece of it. This isn't like when you're sharing the last cookie with your kids and you're like, well, a little bit for you and a lot for me. You give him your whole life. And I'll, and I'll be honest, I, I think there is a... a, a a version of Christianity that in evangelicalism that we have seen rise to fame in the last 20 years called prosperity gospel. And it's this idea, and it's been taught everywhere, and it's been insidious because it's not biblical. It's this idea that God wants to make you financially wealthy. He wants to make you really rich. He wants to, he wants to bless you with all these good things, and he's going to bless you with all these good things. If you just have enough faith, and if you're not really rich right now, it's probably because you don't have enough good faith. You need to have more faith, brother, and then you'll be rich, which is really ironic in that the only people that really get wealthy that way are the preachers that are preaching that. But anyways... It's also not biblical, but it's this common idea. So I, somewhere along the line, we got scared at telling you the truth, which is that you have to give him your whole life. And so we stopped doing that. And what we started telling you is, you know what we'll do? We're going to write you a sales pitch. You ever seen a, a late night infomercial? I know that doesn't happen anymore because of streaming services, but there used to be these really bad late night TV uh, commercials. And they wanted you to call something. If you call, act now, and you'll get two for free. Get, nobody? I'm really old. Okay. And they're always trying to pitch you on something. And the problem is that the, the church over the last 25 years has tried to pitch you that you don't have to give your whole life to Christ. What you need to do is like, you just need to, you need to put your faith in Christ. You put your faith in Christ, then it'll be you, but a little bit better. Like, like Jesus is 
Like if you played Mario Kart and you get a little special star, right, and you get a little boost, and they like suddenly you're a little faster. Like that's that's church, right? If it's just you plus Jesus, is a little bit faster than you without Jesus. So you should have some Jesus. And it's a lie. The the idea that you don't have to change very much. You know, you come as you are because Jesus loves sinners. That part's true. And then you can just live your life of freedom and Jesus will be there to give you a helping hand when you're down. So now you're not doing this alone, right? Because now it's not just you on your own. It's you plus Jesus and you plus Jesus got to be better than just you on your own. And so you're sold kind of this whole little concept of like, you know, Jesus is never going to give you up. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to run around and desert you. Never going to make you cry. Never going to say goodbye. Never going to tell a lie and hurt you. You've been tricked. You've been rickrolled. You've been tricked. That's not true. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what the Bible says. Somebody sold you a lie to make it palatable, to make it easy to swallow but you didn't get the gospel. If you don't believe me, turn to Matthew 19 and read the story of the rich young ruler and tell me if that sounds like prosperity gospel. Or turn to Matthew 10, where Jesus talks about leaving even your father and mother to follow him. Or turn to Luke 9.23 and wonder what it means to die to yourself every day to follow him. This was never incremental change. It was never partial. It was never fractional. It was never give, you, give Jesus the parts that I don't care about. I'll keep the decisions. I'll keep my hands on the steering wheel. It'll be my life and Jesus will just add a boost. None of those things are true. Instead, living sacrifice that you were to, you were to give, you'd present your whole body. Your whole body back then would encompass every, it would encompass your mind, your soul, the physical, your plans, your dreams, your efforts, your desires, your relationships, your political views, your opinions, your fandom, your preferences, your social media, your comfort. All of it. It's all his. He paid for it. He didn't just create you. Then he had to come back and redeem you. It's his, not yours. And in light of that, what our actual question is not, how little can I give to him and it'll be okay? Like, it's not a negotiation. It's not transactional. You're not at Walmart trying to negotiate for some bags that you don't want to pay 10 cents for. It's everything. So you're standing in front of the king who's done all of this, and, and, and the question is, what can I give back to the God who saved me? Because I'm nothing, and I have nothing, and if I was really honest, I already had to admit, this was part of salvation, I already had to admit that I couldn't fix myself and that I was the problem. And so he fixes it, and now I'm trying to give him a gift of gratitude, and all I can do is stand in front of the king and promise to give him everything I have left, which is exactly what he wants in the first place. He just wants you, but he wants all of you. The problem is we generally have too high of a view of ourselves, and too low of a view of God. If we really understood how little we had to give, then we could give what we had pretty easily, realizing that there was a humility in what we have to give. Uh, I grew up playing a lot of sports, but not basketball. But I decided, I don't know why, that as a freshman in high school, 
I wanted to go out and try out for the high school basketball team. Now, if you've ever met a short, redheaded, freckled, unathletic, uncoordinated, very short, 95-pound basketball player, you're right, you haven't. Um, so I went out for the team, and I was awful. And the coach pulled me aside after all the tryouts, and he said, Daniel, you're really terrible. Um, actually, he called me Morgan. Morgan, you're really awful. You're going to make the team. I made the last spot. But it's only because every time you walk out there, you, 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 you give everything you've got. But the only way you're going to stay on the team is if every time you're here, you're early for practice and you stay late and you give it everything you've got because like you've got no talent. <laughs> if you, it was a real, a real encourager, my coach. <laughs> but he made it really clear. Like, like you have nothing. All you've got left is effort. Okay. All you've got left, Christian, is your heart. And that's all he wants in the first place. It's just that where your heart goes, everything else will go to. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship, that's so, such an interesting phrase. The word for worship here is latrian, in Greek, which would have been uh, any sort of act that the priests or the Levites did. So any sort of uh, religious act of, of the sacrifices or the very incense they would burn, or any of the things that they would do in the temple would have been called uh, latrian. It's, it's a form of worship, a religious worship. But the word for spiritual here is really interesting because the word in Greek is logiken, L-O-G-I-K-E-N, logiken. And that actually, we, we translate that as spiritual worship, but that could also be translated as reasonable or logical. So you could read this as holy and acceptable to God, which is your logical worship, your reasonable worship. What is he saying? He's saying, in light of the gospel and in light of you understanding how little you are and how great God is, that the only logical response to that is to give your life to God as a living sacrifice. It's the only reasonable response. No other response would make sense. So we worship God with song, like we did earlier, with giving, with prayer, with praise. All these things are wonderful, but all of these things are a response that are intended to come from the heart. We give our heart to God and these things follow as expressions of worship. This verse is saying your whole life was intended to be lived in worship to God. Whole life, Monday through Sunday, every part of it, so when you go to work and you work well, you are worshiping God. Amen. No matter what you do, when you are raising your children, you are raising them in worship to God. When you are doing chores, when you are doing laundry, which I thought was from Satan, 
It is worship to God your whole life. This would have been such a dramatic change for a first century Jew because worship was such a regimented thing. There was such a logical thing. There was such these check boxes of exactly what worship looked like. And now all of a sudden, Paul's like, no, it has nothing to do with that. But you know, Paul, when he's explaining this, he's really explaining what Jesus had said. And remember, Paul wasn't one of the original disciples, but Jesus all the way back in Samaria, when he's explaining to the Samaritan woman and she's trying to pull him into that controversy about which temple, the temple in Samaria or the temple in Jerusalem, which one's the right one. And she's just trying to deflect because he's trying to share with her salvation. And uh, he tells her, hey, there's a day coming. There's a day coming where you won't worship at either of these temples anymore. You won't worship it. You won't even have this controversy. In fact, he says in verse 23, he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, hey, Jesus called this shot. He told you it was coming. And now it's here. You're not gonna go to a temple to worship him. You don't go to a building to worship him. You worship him with your very life all the time. Let's talk about how we go about doing this, how we do this. What does it look like to be a living sacrifice? Well, Paul's gonna explain that in the very next verse, verse two. So how do we go about, and he would have, this would have been necessary for first century Christians as well. Hey, we only know worship the way it looked before. How are we supposed to know what worship is supposed to look like? How, do, how are we supposed to know what it looks like to be a living sacrifice? How are we supposed to know that our worship is holy and acceptable to God? How, who, who's gonna tell us? Well, Paul's gonna tell us right here in verse two, this is why this is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, because it's the practical explanation of what it looks like for you and I to live a life that is holy and acceptable to God. Does that sound like it might be of interest? Okay, good. I'm glad. I guess they put it down here where we could read it. Verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen, I'm going to pause. Anytime you hear a baby cry, you should smile. <laughs> that we actually have babies here to cry. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Makes me chuckle. All right. <clears throat> Four things real quick. All in this verse. There's one thing not to do. So it starts with a warning. And then there's one thing you should do instead of that. So don't do this, but do this. That's really a clear opening that we want to start with. And then he's going to say, if you do that, this will happen. So he's going to give you the result. And he's going to finish off with, here's your main goal for all of this. Here, here's, here's why, right? Here's what's going to lead to way, way, way down the road. So thing not to do, thing to do instead, what it's going to create in us, and then why, why that's so important, okay? The thing not to do, do not be conformed to the world. Now, here's what I want to tell you. The question is not whether or not you will be conformed to something. You will be. And if in your mind, pride is speaking right now, I'm mean like, well, not me, I'm strong. 
You are not a unique little snowflake. You, just like me, was born dead to sin. We were utterly depraved. We did not think about God or care about God. We were enemies of God, and it was only because he came, died for us, resurrected, saved us, and pulled our dead corpses out of the grave and put his spirit in us that we are even considering any of these things today. So not only will you be conformed to this world, you already were conformed to this world because you were of this world. That's all there was. That's why he had to come. We live in a fallen world. You were born, just like I was born, dead in sin with evil in our heart. So everything that we ever knew before Christ was of this world. It wasn't just conformed to this world. It was of this world. We were already there. It's not like, don't be conformed to this world like somehow all of us had a starting point where we were already holy and we were like, yeah, I don't want to be conformed. You already were conformed to the world. And there's a pressure from everything outside of God to take you back there. I like the way the NIV says it. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world or, or, or the logic of this world or... Hear me, Christian, because this is so difficult when things are comfortable. Just about everything that this world calls good is not good. And it's so difficult to live a life in the world and not be conformed by it. So so things that the world calls fair are not fair. In fact, things that the world calls unfair, they're probably not unfair. They're probably just. (laughs) Things that the world calls wise not, not wise. I just saw a statistic that said that 19% of eligible voters were willing to vote for whoever Taylor Swift endorsed for president. <laughs> Y'all, if you put your hope in politics, don't be foolish. Things that the world calls valuable are not valuable. Things that the world says you should hunger for, you should not hunger. The world puts immense pressure on you to conform to its patterns and its logic and its wisdom. The Bible's like, man. There's a great quote from J.B. Phillips that says this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God is, for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Now, here's the sneaky thing is that you and I don't set out to allow the world to influence us. None of us get up in the morning and go, you know what I want to do today? I want to get peer pressured by the world to make really bad, unholy decisions. (laughs) So it's not an intentional thing. No No one walks out the door and says, today, world, teach me how... To run from God. I mean, it, it. However, one of the primary things that conforms you to this world is what you consume. In the same way that what you eat and drink over time will have a... Does anyone, has anyone come up with now this brilliant scientific result that what you eat and drink will have an effect on you? <clears throat> anyone tried eating too many donuts? 
or Taco Bell. What you eat and drink, what you consume, has a physical impact on you, does it not? Okay, what you consume mentally, what you consume with your eyes, with your ears, with your mind, what you consume changes you, it has impact on you. So, so what you watch, who you look up to, matters. It will, it will change, it will influence you. What you listen to, who you think is wise. I harp on you guys all the time about watching Fox News. The reason I harp on you about that is because most of you don't have a problem with watching MSNBC. If you did, I would harp on that. But my point is, I had a pastor friend that uh, every lunch, every single day, every single day at lunch, he put his headphones in and he watched an entire hour of Fox News. And I was like, that's more than you read the Bible. Do you, do you want to be a disciple of Fox News? Do you want to become that? Because what you consume is what you become. Y'all realize that the more you consume it, the more you become it, right? What you read on social media, you become. What you surround yourself with, you become. I read, I read, I love writing uh, scientific studies on the human body. And, and so one of the, the studies that I read is um, these, the single number one correlator for people that are not in good shape, getting in good shape. Do you know what the number one thing is? You'd think it's like what you eat, right? It's not. You'd think it's working out. It's not. The number one thing is who you hang out with. If you want to get in physical shape, you surround yourself with people that are in good physical shape and care about their physical shape. It has more of an impact than any other thing you can do on this world. Why? Because they influence you. And you begin to conform to them. The same thing is true about anything else, about uh, financial success, uh, about whatever you want to, whatever thing that matters to you. So much so, that, that we could learn that if we really wanted to worship God with our whole heart, we should probably surround ourselves with people that worship God with their whole heart. Huh? Mm-hmm. Shocking result, right? Do not be conformed to this world. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Jeff Bell visiting and he was talking about evangelism and how you know, the, the, one of the big goals that he has is just be ordinary, you know, like just, just be ordinary. Just go about your ordinary business. You go about your ordinary things in your life and, and have an opportunity to share the gospel. And I would say that's so true. Be ordinary, but don't be normal. You, you, you can't live your life for God. You cannot present yourself as a living sacrifice and be normal. Because there's nothing normal about that. Listen, y'all already know I gave up being normal a long time ago. You can't be normal. Be ordinary, but don't be normal. All right, so don't do this. We're going to reject the world's influence. How are we going to do that? Okay, this, this is really important. For the most part, 
you do not fight off the conformity of the world by eliminating things. Now, there are going to be times where you need to get something out of your life. You're doing too much of something. You're watching too much of something. You're reading too much of something. I get it. You're going to need to do that. But for the most part, we don't fight this conformity by eliminating sin. We fight it by falling in love. And it's right here. So one thing to do, renew your mind. Renew your mind. That, that sounds like I need to mail that thing in every three years to the DMV. How do we renew our mind? How do we renew our mind? Let's talk about what it looks like to renew our mind. Um, the, the word that's being used here, so it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed is only used one other time in all of the Bible. It's at Jesus' transfiguration. When he goes up to the mount and, and the father is visiting with him and it says his face shined, like it was immistakable that clearly something had happened to Jesus. And the word there is transformed. Our experience as we follow God, it won't happen immediately, it'll, it'll be an incremental process, should be so significant that you can't be normal because you're being transformed, you're being changed. Now, we do this. We do this by focusing on putting our attention toward, stirring up our affections toward Jesus, far more than by eliminating things or following any sort of checkboxes or rules. I read this from Piper about uh, this word transformation. I want to read this to you. This is from John Piper. He says, I point this out for one reason about Jesus' transfiguration, to make the point that the nonconformity to the world does not primarily mean the external avoidance of worldly behaviors. That's not really what it means. It's not like you can just eliminate those things. That will happen, but you can avoid all kinds of worldly behaviors and still not be transformed. You know that, right? The Pharisees had avoided all kinds of worldly behaviors, but they weren't transformed. What was missing? This is, this is the verse from the transfiguration. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Something like that happens to us spiritually and morally, mentally first on the inside and then later at the resurrection on the outside. So Jesus says of us at the resurrection, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Transformation is not switching from the to-do list of the flesh to the to-do list of the law. You're not trading in one list for another and thinking that you're going to be transformed. When Paul replaces the list, the works of the flesh, he does not replace it with the works of the law. He replaces it with the fruit of the Spirit. So what is the renewal of our mind and how do we do it? Okay, yes, it is, if you've been in church, we call these the spiritual disciplines, Things like reading the word of God, prayer, meditation, study, fellowship. These are spiritual disciplines. However, I'm not gonna go through them all. I'm just gonna tell you this. It's doing those things, but it's doing them for the right reason. Because you can just check those boxes and it not actually transform you. Um, I, had a, I was having a, I have a buddy that I've been thinking about where he would fit, like, like where he could serve inside the body it would really make him come alive. Because I, I know from practice that serving is one of these things that if you will start to serve the Lord in, in your church somewhere, it changes you. Amen? 
That's why, listen, I don't have angst that y'all that don't serve, don't serve, and like, oh, there's things that need to get done, and I have this task list, and I'm like, oh, there's not enough people working. That's not my angst. My angst is that you don't understand what the transformation in your life would look like if you would just start serving the Lord. And you don't wait around on a couch somewhere and figure out what your spiritual gift is. And then once you, once you figure it out, then you go do it. You just jump into the trench and you start working and God reveals that over time as he's transforming you. And so I've been thinking about my buddy, like, where would this work? And so I had texted him some stuff like, hey, have you ever thought about this? What about this? And he was laughing at me. He's like, you just want me to work? And I was like, no, I mean, yes, but no. No, no, I want you, I want you to thrive, man. I want you to. I want you to be transformed. I want, I want God to have that part of your life where he's just wrestling with you and he's changing you. And like, I want you to be transformed. And this is a way that God does that. And so if you're not serving, it's not that you're shorting God or you're shorting the church, you're shorting yourself. You're not getting an opportunity for him to use that and change you. And you could, you, for any spiritual discipline, you for the Christian, one of the hardest things to figure out and continue to do is figure out what stirs up my affection for the Lord and then do those over and over again. You gotta figure it out. It takes investigation, it takes work, but it renews our mind. It's, a, it's the incremental change that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us to make us more Christ-like. And here's the thing, uh, transformation, it, it, the Holy Spirit does it. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. You'd never do it on your own. It's like, uh, it's like fuel for your car. Without fuel, you're not going anywhere. You can have the best intentions you want to have. If there's no fuel in the tank, it's not going anywhere. However, even though you couldn't replicate that fuel if you didn't have it, it's your job, if you own a car, to go to the gas station, right? If you run out of gas, you don't throw your hands up and go, why didn't my gas tank magically refill? Who was supposed to go to the gas station? You were. You're not the gas, but you got to go there. Renewing your mind. You can't renew your mind on your own. The Holy Spirit has to do that, but, but you, you, you're responsible for, for doing the things, investigating the things, trying the things, seeking after the Lord. If it doesn't work, try something else. Allowing God to have a platform in which to renew your mind. That transformation, by the way, is way slower than I wish it was. Like, I, I wish that, like, I would, I would seek the Lord and then all the things that I struggle with in the flesh would just be gone forever, but they're not. It's, it's, it's a fight, amen? amen? It's a fight. It's work. But man, as God transforms you, it just changes you. I'll just, I'll tell you now, like, one of the most encouraging things that I've had in a while was reading some of the responses in the survey because I read them four years ago and I, like, y'all have really grown, You've grown gentle. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's Christ-likeness. That's, that's, that's worthy of honor. Good job. And if you didn't take the survey, now you're going to be a lot gentler. <laughs> it's baby steps. It's incremental. All right. There's a goal here. So we're not going to be confirmed by the world and say we're going to renew our minds so that we can be transformed that's what studying scripture does. That's what listening to good preaching does. That's what fellowship does. That's what being around believers does. That's what the, infl- man, we're on you all the time. I get in a group, get in a group, get in a group, get in a group. Why? If you surround your pe- yourself with people that love God, you're more prone to love God. So that, here's the goal in verse 12. 
renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So so, so the goal here in this transformation process of making you more Christ-like is that you would be able to discern what pleases God. Now you think, well, that's easy. It's not easy. I mean, you make a thousand decisions a day. You wake up and you decide what to wear for today. You're probably not thinking, what would what would be the most pleasing to God about what I'm wearing today? Or maybe you do, I don't know. It could be really holy and I'm not. And you get in your car and you're like, what is the most pleasing way to make this right-hand turn? What is the most pleasing thing to God of, to eat for breakfast today? Like, right, you make a lot of decisions. You never think about what's pleasing to God. And if you were to think about what's pleasing to God, you might not know what the answer was, amen? That might be kind of tough. Most of the decisions you make as Christians are not about sinning or not sinning. It's about morally neutral stuff that you're trying to figure out if that's good for my pursuit of Christ or not. The Bible will say, if you'll renew your mind, if you'll continue to do this process, that as God transforms you, as he grows you, as he spiritually matures you, you will get better and better and better and better at discerning what is good and pleasing to God. In fact, that is his prayer. This is Paul's prayer for most of the churches in the New Testament is this same thing. If you turn to his letter in Philippians in chapter one, verses nine and 10, here's what he says. He says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and, there's the word, discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What is he saying? Hey, if you'll grow, if if you'll do these things, if you'll grow, there'll be a point where you'll actually be able to tell what is the most pleasing way to live or make a decision to God, which is the whole reason we're here. Ephesians 5, in 8, and 10, he, 8 through 10, he says, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, another word for discernment, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The goal of of renewing your mind and being transformed is that as you become spiritually mature, you and I will be able to discern better and better and better what is pleasing to the Lord. You have one job, one job, Christian. Please the king until you die. That's it. What'd you learn today at church? Supposed to please the king till I die. You got it. You nailed it. You have one job. He, he saved you and then he left you here on earth and there's this gap. We, we sing today about the in-between. You've been saved You're not holy yet, but you're wearing his holiness. He's transforming you. He's working on you day by day, degree by degree until the day you go home to the father. And in that time in between, you have one job. Please the king. Please the king. And you can't even figure out what it really looks like to please the king if you're not renewing your mind and pushing away the world's influence and continuing to strive toward what it looks like to live a holy life, a living sacrifice. Now, I just want you to think about this. Before you were saved, you did not have a desire to please God. So this isn't even a thing of your own volition. You weren't sitting around on the couch one day, on a Sunday. So I heard there's a big thing going on later today. Taylor Swift's boyfriend is playing at an Usher concert or something. Uh, No? Sorry, sports ball. Anyways, 
weren't sitting around on your couch one day going, how could I live my life to please God? You were not get real. I live my life for me based on my terms and my rules and what was best for me. And at best, I might think about somebody else if it made me feel better about myself. But God. And then God intervened. And when God intervened in your life and he called you to salvation and he saved you and he put his spirit inside you, suddenly you have a compulsion to please God. And yet it's still a struggle, amen? Because you live in a fallen, dark world. You live in a body that is not perfected yet. There is still a fleshly desire of sin inside every single one of us. And there is a fight to learn what it looks like to please God. The good news is he put his spirit inside you and he gave you one another. And so our path, our work, our effort is simply learning what it looks like to please the king. So what do you do? What do we do in light of this? How do we go about working toward renewing our mind? Here's the first thing I want to tell you. Take small but intentional steps. Take small steps. Take small steps. You, don't, you may not change your life in a day. Most of us don't. Take a small step. Be intentional about it. Surround yourself with healthy people. And by healthy people, I mean people that are also struggling and love the Lord. Or build into your life a healthy habit. One of the primary reasons this year that we wanted the entire church to read. How many people are still trying to read the Bible in a year? How many people are still kind of falling behind? One of the primary reasons we wanted you to read the Bible in a year with us is that as a small step that helps you to renew your mind daily. I, uh, I was talking to a friend who had messaged me and said, I've never read as much of the Bible as I've read in the first two weeks of this year. Like, do you, do you know how exciting that is? And, and, and just this message of like, how much more joy there is in life because every day I'm waking up and God is speaking to me. Yes, yes, he is. It's our job to listen. We got to carve out that time. A little less Fox News, a little more Jesus. We're going to put ourselves in the presence of healthy people. That's why we want you to be into, in a small group, building relationships, letting people in your life, being vulnerable and authentic with them. You're gonna to try to start a healthy habit. And here's the big one. You're gonna ask God. If you don't have the desire to make the changes in your life that you know God wants you to make, would you just ask him? Please. He didn't expect you to like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You didn't save yourself. He did. And so when you're struggling now, he's not expecting you to do it on your own. That's why he gave you his spirit. He's a good, good father, amen? Simply ask him. If you don't have the desire, ask him for the desire. He wants to be wanted. And then be patient because it takes a long, long time. Um, we're gonna close. I'm gonna pray for you. Our Prayer team and our elders are going to be up here to pray for you. Uh, two things, just first is this. If, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, if we've been talking about all of this pleasing the king and you don't even know him as king, we would 
love to talk to you about what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus today. Declare him as your king with your heart and your mouth. Believe in him as your Lord and Savior and, and, and live this life of living sacrifice for him. And we'll be up here to talk to you about that today. Uh, if you've been struggling with something, an area in your life that you feel like has just been the conformity to the world, that it's just been something you're wrestling with and you can't seem to get through it, would you come and ask God to take that away, to solve that for you, to heal that for you, to work through that for you? Just ask him. We're gonna pray for you. Uh, we'll be up here to pray for you about anything you want to pray for. Anything that's on your heart, uh, you just come as the Lord leads you. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you for sending him to save us. But God, thank you for not just leaving us here to figure it out on our own. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your people that you have put here in fellowship to worship you and to love each other. God, we cannot wait to see what you will do molding us into your image. And we can't wait to see what you'll do with the neighborhoods and communities, God, as we begin to share your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.